Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy. So I've talked a lot about topics ranging from the Border Patrol, the people that have been in it, the people that have stayed in our orbit, the special people that have come and touched our lives and moved on. And this one for me is no different because today is going to be my very last podcast uh, with What's Important Now as the host. And today I'm going to be turning over the uh, the reins to who will be my replacement as chief of the United States Border Patrol Academy when I move on to the Del Rio sector. And I have with me today as my guest, my replacement. And I could not think of a better person to be sitting in this chair than Chief Ryan Landrum. Ryan, thanks for being here. Yes, sir. Thank you, Chief. So, obviously, I want to tell you a little bit about him, and I want you to get to know who is going to be sitting in this chair moving forward from this point on. It's been my experience in my time here, in my tenure, that it takes a special type of a person to be able to do this job and do it well. The benefit is you have so many great people that make this place run and churn out top-notch law enforcement officers and agents, uh, second to none. This academy, this training is just, it's phenomenal. It's something to behold. I had no idea coming from the field what this was like, and I think that sentiment's going to be echoed for many folks that come through here. But when you look at who's going to be sitting at the helm of the United States Border Patrol Academy, you want somebody that's going to set the example. You want somebody that's going to... uh, have an understanding of what this place needs to accomplish for our green family and for this organization and for the country and the people that we serve. When I had spoke with the chief of the border patrol about this, you know, he sought my input as to what I thought, who would be a, a, a good candidate or who would be good candidates. And I was surprised at that exercise, just how few people came to mind. Uh, but this gentleman, was at the top of the list. And I say this because I've known Chief Landrum for, for quite a while now. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about his his bio. But our paths, just as many of us do throughout our careers, have path, have crossed several times yes, sir. Uh, throughout throughout our uh, our time in this in this uniform. And I hope this isn't the last one. But let me tell you a little bit about Chief Landrum. So he joined the Border Patrol in September of 2000. And he was part of Class 451. And you know what I'm going to ask. What is your class motto? Do you remember it? Yes, sir. It's uh, fear none, respect all, four, five, one, above them all. There you go. And that's uh, 21 years later. That's right. Just like that. That's awesome. Still stay in touch with your classmates? I do. We uh, we, we didn't graduate a very large class. Um, and we uh, we got hit by the uh, the air marshal uh, surge. So uh, those of us that are that are still in, uh, we... we tend to uh, communicate on an email and text messages and stuff like that. And what you're talking about, of course, is you came in at a time shortly before 9-11. 9-11 happens, and they stood up basically or, or I guess, bolstered significantly the Federal Air Marshal Program. And a lot of junior agents at the time took advantage and went to that organization in no small part because of that sense of calling to, uh, to, to help keep everybody safe, but also the opportunity maybe to be closer to home, so we lost a lot of people in that short period of time, and I have to assume that with a year in, yeah. a lot of your classmates did that. 100%. We literally had exactly one year in when uh, when we, we were attacked on 9-11, and the sense of duty did indeed uh, kind of take over, and we, and we lost quite a few people. Did you feel that tug? Um, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I, I had every 
every interest when I joined the Border Patrol of using the U.S. Border Patrol as a stepping stone. That was I've my intent. I've heard that so many times. Yeah, so I got in at 18, mm-hmm. um, and I had every intention. Wait, wait. <laughs> 18 years old, you came in the Border Patrol. That's right. So you couldn't even drink. Couldn't drink, couldn't <laughs> buy bullets. Uh, you can insert every uh, every joke you could ever hear about being too young to buy buy bullets and, and buy beer uh, as, a, as, a, as a law enforcement officer, and I've heard them all. <laughs> so what was it like going through the academy as an 18? We, ha- we have individuals here right now that are in their 50s. One gentleman right now I think is, is 60. Mm-hmm. So, But safe to say everybody was older than you, and a lot of them had probably a lot more life experience, mm-hmm. uh, had, had been there and done that. What was life like as an 18-year-old trainee? I'll tell you what. Honestly, um, I would say it was easier. Really? Yeah. I got um, my, my classmates embraced me uh, mm-hmm. uh, from the get-go. Uh, we we kind of talk about, I'm sure you do as well, becoming a family uh, mm-hmm. within the Border Patrol, but also within your class. And, and you, you really start to form those bonds, and that's who you're with. And at the time, it was five and a half, six months of, of academy uh, classes. Um, but in terms of... Uh, in terms of how, how easy or difficult it was, I had no other distractions. Couldn't go out on the weekends. Going back to the whole, you know, couldn't, couldn't buy bullets and couldn't buy alcohol. Had no uh, outside interferences. Nothing um, to do but study. Nothing to do but study. And, and equally, um, this was a no-fail proposition for me. It was, I had nothing else to go to. I turned down colleges. Um, I, I put all my eggs in the U.S. Border Patrol basket. And I was not going to fail. <laughs> so, and of course, I'm sure it was the same for you. I came in at 21, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, three years after my background took about 10 minutes because I hadn't been anywhere <laughs> done anything either. I can't imagine yours. They probably looked at it and said, okay, I can go see his high school, talk to his teachers. <laughs> That's literally exactly what happened. Um, I, I applied the day I turned 18. Um, and I think I was, uh, my, my background, everything was done in, in literally about four months. Um, and, and they indeed went to my high school, uh, talked to teachers and, and, and uh, there was nobody else to talk to, so that's who they talked to, and uh, here we are. That's amazing. Yeah. So, and I know we're going to kind of get to this down the road a little bit, but <clears throat> why the Border Patrol? Um, so I, I grew up in a law enforcement family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was a police officer. Uh, I have several uncles who are police officers. I have an uncle who is a U.S. Border Patrol agent. Um, he became a Border Patrol agent when I was a freshman in high school, mm-hmm. and I was done. And that's what I was going to do. Um Equally, uh, this was the only law enforcement organization that I could enter at 18. Most, like, uh, you know, I would love to have been a Texas state trooper, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Being from Texas, that's kind of who you grow up kind of idolizing as those Mm -hmm. state troopers. Um, But I couldn't get in until I was 21 and I had at least uh, 60 hours of of college uh, uh, credits behind me. Uh, I think it's since changed a little bit, but uh, this was the only option, and it was a no-fail option. And we're going to talk about your uncle here in a little bit, but let's go back. So... You signed up for the Border Patrol, took the entrance exam. That was the only one that would take you at, at 18 years old with the intent of using it as a stepping stone, I'm assuming, to go to DPS. No, it was more, uh, you know, any three-letter agency you can think of in the okay. federal government. Right. I was going to go in, get my college degree, get the uh, life experience. As you know, back then, you had to have this uh, this experience. This, mm-hmm. You couldn't just come on to the U.S. Border Patrol without some kind of other experience behind you. Um, so I was going to gain that that experience, get the degree, and then step into a DEA, an ATF, something, you know, so I, this story has been echoed so many times, <laughs> and here you are 21 years later. Yeah. And during those 21 years, let's, let's continue on here. So after graduating from class 451, you were assigned to the Isleta Station in El Paso Sector. 
in 2007, you became a supervisory Border Patrol agent at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy. That's right. So now it's the second trip back, first as a trainee, now as an instructor. And I want to talk a little bit about what you did in a second. But continuing on, continuing on so uh, at the, after the Academy, you go to the Eagle Pass Station. I'm assuming you laddered over there to, uh, as a soup. That's right. And then uh, in uh, 2011, uh, promoted a field operations supervisor at Laredo West. So now you've gone from El Paso to Del Rio to, to Laredo. You're working your way south. That's right. <laughs> to Laredo West Station. And then uh, 2012, the deputy patrol agent in charge of the Freer Station, also in Laredo. And then 2014, you went up to headquarters as an assistant chief uh, with the Law Enforcement Operations Directorate. In 2015, this is uh, where our paths really start crossing. Yeah. You took my place at the Rio Grande City Station as the patrol agent in charge. Yeah. So this is twice That's our right. paths are crossing here doing the same thing. And we were talking about this earlier. They either really think highly of both <laughs> of us or they really don't like both of us. <laughs> kind of tied that way, right? And in 2018, you promoted to the associate chief at U.S. Border Patrol headquarters where you did some pretty interesting stuff I want to talk about with the commissioner's office and, uh, and ultimately did a uh, stint over at the White House. Then you went back as the acting deputy chief of law enforcement operations directorate, and then here you are at the academy. Right. And you're actually going to start at the academy December 19th? That's correct. Okay, yes, that'll be your first official start day. That's it. All right. Now, you got a bachelor's degree. You went ahead and finished that bachelor's degree in uh, public administration, and you also got a master of strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College. Not quite as good as the National War College, right? <laughs> well, we can talk about that if, if you'd like. Uh, if you talk about the premier, you know, military education institute. And I know your uncle will probably be right there with you talking and arguing your favor, too. That's right. So then you also graduated from the SES Candidate Development Program, something I did, I did as well. So I want to talk about that a little bit. So all of that is to say over the last 21 years, you've had an outstanding career. And obviously you focused on being a Border Patrol agent and you never looked back at the, at the other three-letter agencies. 100%. That story has been echoed so many times. I want to hear uh, from you. When did that transition occur? When did you say, no, this is for me, this is what I want to do? Um, it's going to sound cliche, but I would say almost immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as I graduated the academy, I went to uh, the 451st session was in Glencoe. Um, and we EOD'd in, in uh, I say we EOD'd, we actually started in January of, I guess, 2001 uh, at Isleta, my, my classmates and I. And... Um, could not believe that I was being paid to do the job that we uh, that we love so much. Could not believe it. So I fell in love with the mission immediately. And then the uh, this organization has a way of kind of sucking you in. The people, uh, the camaraderie you share um, until you you know work a midnight shift. You know in the middle of the in the middle of the desert in El Paso and it's 16 degrees outside and you know you're only got one one buddy as a backup. It's kind of hard to walk away from that anytime if if you if you kind of get bitten by that bug, it's, it doesn't leave you. So we talk about that with the trainees as well. It's, it's hard to find folks that can relate to a story like that. Mm. And so it's hard to find somebody that you can have a conversation about it. Mm. It's one thing to tell a story and have people listening to, wow, you're doing that. It's another to have somebody that can kind of relate or empathize with and say, yeah, I know it's tough. I know mm. what that's like. Yeah, you may think it's tough until you've actually been out there in that bone-chilling cold <laughs> out in the middle of the desert, you can't see anything, mm. and you're tired. Yeah. So... That's one of the things I think that makes us uh, more of a family and, and keeps us close is that, that shared experience and, and that relatability that we don't find too many other places. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So after Isleta, then you uh, you move on down to uh, uh, Eagle Pass? No, here. Oh, here at the Academy? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Well, let's talk about that then. So 
What made you decide to come back as an instructor? Um, it was an it was an opportunity. Um, I had uh, I've always um, kind of I applied for several jobs. I was looking to promote. Um, I was a I was a canine handler at Eddie Sleda for. Um, quite a bit of time for about five years. And, I, and as, a, as a kid growing up in, in South Texas, uh, I had two goals. One was to be in law enforcement and the other was to be a canine handler. And I got to accomplish both of those in the U.S. Border Patrol really immediately. And I, I, I knew at some point that um, I wasn't going to get the, that type of opportunity again to be a canine handler, to fulfill a, a childhood dream of mine. Uh, so I, I really stayed in the program uh, probably a little longer than I, I should have. Um, but I wouldn't trade a day uh, in, for anything with, with the leash in my hand uh, compared to, to promoting much more quickly. You know, um, funny story, so before I forget. Yeah. So when I transferred to Laredo, and this happens you know, fairly frequently, but I ended up buying your uncle's house, <laughs> and it had this incredible, phenomenal <laughs> kennel that yeah. was built. It had a nice roof and cages and everything. And, and looking at that thing, I'm like, what in the world? I remember the realtor saying, no, you had to see this dog. <laughs> yeah, because you you stayed with uh, you stayed with your uncle there for a good chunk of time, and, yep. and I guess the, you know, the your your dog was there too, right? That's right. I, I went yeah. and a part of the canine program is you know depending on the dog, and depending on how long you stay in the program, they will retire uh, the canine to you if you want it uh, when that when either your tenure is done and or the dog's tenure is done, uh, which is also probably why I stayed in the program a little mm-hmm. longer than I than I should have. Uh, with I wanted to keep the dog was essentially what it was. What's your partner? You, you develop a sentimental attachment, right? 100%, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's, that was my dream, and I wasn't well, going to let her go. I remember that. It might as well have been another wing of the house. I mean, oh, it yeah. was it was built on. So. Yeah, I literally built it like it was the house. You made me think about that whenever you were talking. I forgot that you were a canine handler. Yeah. That, that, that's that's awesome. So you still have the dog, or did he? No, the dog passed away passed in 2013. Oh, um, but okay. it's, I had her for, for 13 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But, good partner. Yeah, oh, yeah, the best. She was great. So when you were at the academy, what did you teach? Taught operations. I think we called it law back then. I kind of, kind of transitioned between law and operations as a name, but uh, it was it was instructing the, the law portion of what uh, students go through today, as well as generally operations and, and instructing those uh, those disciplines. And did you see a change in when you went through as a trainee to what you were teaching back then? Um, I think that it, it probably wasn't an extreme change as it, as an extreme as changed as it is today. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it, I think the more just the experience was different sitting on the other side of the, of the podium. Sure. Um, so I, I don't know that there was so much change as much as it was just a different uh, perspective going back back uh, to the academy as an instructor from being a trainee. Okay. But even even so, as a trainee, and then you get to be behind the podium and you actually get to be the ones that teach. And I, and I say this to the to the men and women here all the time. It, you know, we have a lot of good, solid Border Patrol agents out there. It takes a special breed to be able to be a good solid board patrol agent and then be able to teach those yeah. skills and those experiences to the next generation. Right. So it says a lot that you kind of uh, <laughs> have, have checked that box and been able to do that. And that's, that's a good experience. I'm sure you're going to leverage during your tenure here as a chief. Tell you what, I'm, I'm happy to have had that experience. Um, I, I, uh, I don't have to come into uh, sitting in the chief's chair uh, cold. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to, to a staff member this morning um, I think as a, in a sector environment, you could probably go in and, and learn what you need to learn as a Border Patrol agent pretty quickly. It's about building relationships and, and understanding your people and what their uh, missions are, require them to, to, to achieve every single day. But the academy is just a different animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have no experience at the academy previously, um, it could be a little tougher. 
So that was me. Yeah. I, and, and you know this. Yeah. I, I had taught Bortec basics and Borstar basics and the like, but never at the academy. I went through the, the PT instructor school and FIT, the firearms instructor training, uh, but I never had the opportunity to come here as an instructor, and I always regretted that. And, yes, you're absolutely right. It's a completely different animal, and the learning curve is a little bit more steep yes, whenever sir. you're having to come in, uh, Colt. So you're going to have that benefit. Right. It's outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. So you leave the academy, mm-hmm. then you go to Eagle Pass. That's right. Right. Yeah. So tell us about that. What was life like there? I'll tell you what, Eagle Pass, um, specifically in the Del Rio sector, um, for just, just I think that's where you're heading next. That's where I'm headed. That's um, why I'm asking. Probably some of the best work uh, with some of the best people that I've ever ever uh, had the opportunity to work with. Um, the, back then, it was uh, it was just as, as 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 if you drew up a Border Patrol recruitment poster. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's what you did in Eagle Pass South. Um, it was a brand new station which was a tremendous opportunity for me. I think when I got there, the station had only been open for a year-ish, something like that. Um, so the cadre, uh, the, the agent cadre was um, s- mainly very, very new people sprinkled in with some old timers that had come over from the Eagle Pass North station, but had an opportunity, just much like in the academy environment, had the opportunity to kind of shape uh, what, what those agents uh, knew the Border Patrol to be, what they knew leaders to be. Um, so I was there as a first-line supervisor. Tremendous job in the Border Patrol. I'm sure you're aware of that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the last kind of time where you're really right in front of those troops every single, single day and uh, and getting to, to lead them. But with that comes a lot of responsibility as well. So just kind of growing uh, both as, as a leader uh, and as somebody who's you know developing the, the future of the organization. Well, let me ask you this because you have this as a, a unique experience set also. Did your experience and time as a supervisor at the academy help prepare you to be a supervisor in the field? Oh, absolutely, 100%. Um, just being proficient uh, with uh, the kind of the finer things that, that as agents, you know, we have the, our academy time, and then we, we go through a period of post-academy time, and then it kind of becomes kind of reoccurring trainings, um, kind of web-based uh, uh, understanding of, of laws and, and policies and procedures that we all have to follow. But just having left the academy, you, you have a little uh, or granularity behind you in terms of um, the X's and O's, if you will, on, on exactly how to apply these laws, especially at things like a checkpoint or train checks sure. or when dealing with uh, with uh, folks in the field, um, how we're supposed to treat them, how we're supposed to encounter them. Uh, tactically, professionally, uh, all those things. The so, latest and greatest, most up-to-date information, uh, right. the, the training techniques te- techniques, and procedures, yeah. everything, right? That's, that's right. And so you were, at the time, a field operations supervisor, a position that no longer exists. Right. But what took its place was essentially a watch commander today, which means you had oversight of a shift or a unit. That was, uh, that was at Laredo West. Okay. Yeah, so I was at, at, at Eagle Pass South. That was a first liner. I got you. I wanted to be an FOS. That was uh-huh. the issue. Um, I was applying for FOS jobs from the academy. Um, when I got to the academy, we had just started this not to exceed uh, brand new concept in the Border mm-hmm. Patrol, this NTE position. So we were temporarily essentially promoted to supervisors, mm-hmm. and we had to compete our way out. Or um, upon the completion of our NTE, we would go back to being a Border Patrol agent in the field. Mm-hmm. Um being after being here at the academy, I wanted to be a supervisor. I wanted to, to uh, mature my my uh, career in leadership mm-hmm. uh, positions. So I actively sought uh, to lead the academy after about two and a half years um, by becoming an FOS. Couldn't do that. Uh, the, the there was a stigma like, well, you're just at the academy, mm-hmm. so um, you're not ready to be an FOS. You need to go get field supervisory time. Mm-hmm. So I did. 
That was that's what was required of me at the time, and uh, that's what I did. I, I lateraled out to Eagle Pass South uh, as a as a supervisory board project. So I think a lot of those conditions still exist today. Yeah. You still have the NTE position, and yeah. you still have to compete your way to a supervisor or go back to being a border patrol agent. And I think that. Uh, a lot of the men and women that are here probably are faced with some of the same decision points that, that you were faced with. Mm-hmm. And I know you and I had talked about this. Best thing to do if you want to promote is open your aperture and, and be willing to be mobile. That's right. And that's what you did. That's why I landed at a place like Eagle Pass. Mm-hmm. Probably not the uh, top of the, the, the list of places that people would do, generally want to go. Um, but I applied for jobs all over the southwest border, and I always kind of subscribe to the model of um, I always accept the first job that's offered to me. So I got offered Eagle Pass South. The next day I got offered Tucson Station, and I took Eagle Pass because um, they were the first one to offer the job. And if you apply, you better be willing to go. 100%. I had a similar similar experience with the Pembina Station up in North Dakota <laughs> leaving, leaving headquarters. Yeah. That was a, a scary jump off point. Of I'm glad <laughs> I did. It was, it was a great experience, but right. yeah, yeah. So Eagle Pass was a new station, right. and then you went to Laredo West, which was also a fairly new station. That's right. So you kind of had the experience of being at two brand new stations, right? And when you went to Laredo West, as we we talked about, that was as an FOS. So you got your you got your uh, your dream job there. That's right. Right. Spent some time, and then you decided to go to the Freer Station as the deputy patrol agent in charge, the number two person in charge of the station. Yes, sir. So that's more of an interior work in the ranch lands, has yeah. some checkpoints and everything. Differences between the two. Um, Laredo West, I think you said it perfectly. Laredo West is a line station. It's uh, it's 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 almost like a little box, actually. I mean, you you can you can see the battlefield, if you will, very very clearly in Laredo West. Uh, it's a little blurrier out in mm-hmm. out in Freer. Um, Freer is positioned um, in support of Laredo, but in reality, it also really supports the Rio Grande Valley sector. Mm-hmm. So we were getting hit from, you know, the Laredo side on the west, and then coming up north from from Rio Grande Valley. Um, but at the same time, you have to kind of expand your skill set with developing relationships as a leader with uh, with the ranchers, with the local um, law enforcement community and, and that type of thing. So that that's probably the biggest change is, you know, you're focused solely on Border Patrol operations. And Laredo West is out there in the middle of nowhere, really, in terms of uh, what kind of support you have. But you have to work together at an interior station with, with your other with the entire law enforcement community as well as stakeholders or you're just not going to get the job done. And you kind of alluded to it, but both of them are on the overlap of where one sector meets another. Yeah. So when you're over there in, uh, in Laredo West, then you're working heavily with some of the Del Rio stations. That's right. And then over here in Freer, they get the valley, the Rio Grande Valley. So typically those overlap areas are some of the more busy areas for, for a sector, a sector. hundred percent. And weakest link, right? It's always at the seams. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's obviously the the fun work too. That's right. It's 100% the fun work. So then you apparently had enough of having fun (laughs) (laughs) and you decided to go to Washington DC headquarters and this is, uh, I think this is where I actually met you was in, uh, in Washington, D.C. as right. assistant chief when you were up there, right? And you went to work for the law enforcement operations director for the first time. It's yeah. not your second day, not your last time you're going to see that. Uh, experience as an assistant chief, was it a good thing? I thought, I thought the experience as an assistant chief was tremendous. Um, we, we've kind of uh, adopted a model in the Border Patrol where, and this, is, this wasn't then, this is now, right, where um, you kind of have to have this headquarters experience to progress to these upper-level leadership positions in, in the U.S. Border Patrol. Um, and having spent time uh, in, in both uh, kind of you know, leadership in the field as well as uh, being an assistant chief at headquarters, um, I don't think I could have been nearly as successful in the next job, the chief of the, excuse me, the PIC of Rio Grande City, um, had I not had the experiences I gained in the national capital region. So talk about that. Why is that? 
Um, it's just it's uh, you know we kind of it's kind of a joke, but it's it's a reality that um, the the headquarters environment is kind of an AOR or an area of operation mm-hmm. all into itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to you have to uh, work with other components within CBP specifically to accomplish a mission. Um, you start learning about the budget, the budget process. Um, when as a as a line agent or a supervisor, an FOS who has no experience as a headquarters, you start talking about well, why can't why does headquarters do this? Why can't headquarters just give us that? Um, and then you when once you actually spend time in in any of the directorates at headquarters, you start to understand oh well, the budget isn't. Um, as large as you maybe you think it is and maybe 92 percent of that budget's already tied up in in salaries and expenses It's already accounted for it's already accounted for so really you're working with about eight percent of of the annual budget every single year to fund every single uh, operation uh, nationally and then you know so you add you're able to add context number one to what you do in these next leadership jobs and number two you're able to kind of solve problems more easily because you already know that you know this is probably not a tenable uh, opportunity or a tenable uh, solution to a problem because of the things that you have already experienced at headquarters. So you start working around those things faster mm-hmm. and get to yes uh, to achieve a goal that you're trying to achieve, whether it be operationally or developing um, something for uh, the station, uh, whatever it may be. But you already you already know that you know you're gonna you're gonna hit certain. Uh, landmines and you can avoid them quickly. See, I think that's a great way of putting it. I, for me, it's about perspective. Yeah. It's it's a perspective that you gain by being in an assignment like that. Mm-hmm. And you're able to apply that perspective to your decision making in a way that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. And right. it's not about, uh, it's not a capability issue. Yeah. It's just, you don't know until you've actually been there right. and, and seen it. You're able to use those partnerships. You're able to uh, hone your collaboration skills yeah. and that's something that's, I think that's a reason why the headquarters assignment is important to us whenever you look at promoting. Yeah. And then you also start looking at the U.S. Border Patrol as the U.S. Border Patrol. Yeah, exactly. That's a right? great way of putting it. You don't, if, if, you, if you're just at the academy or you're just at Rio Grande Valley sector or you're just in El Centro sector or wherever it may be, you kind of just see that uh, perspective. And with having this broader aperture, uh, um, broader lens that you're able to look through you understand like okay you know what maybe there is a sector that actually has a uh, a worse problem than we do right now so if funds or resources or attention uh, goes to another sector uh, and you don't think it should you probably have a better understanding of why maybe it did so safe to say for somebody that's looking to promote within the organization you recommend it 100 percent. i don't i don't i don't think you can um be the, 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 the leader you want to be without that experience. I really don't. Okay. So you do your time and you're, uh, you get to move out to a, a field assignment. And in my mind, you hit the lottery, you hit the jackpot. Uh, I'm very fond to this day. I'm very partial of this station, the Rio Grande City Station. I think it's one of the best in the entire Border Patrol, yeah. not only for living in the Rio Grande Valley, which I love, yeah. but also the kind of work and the kind of people that were at that station at True, it could not be more true. Um, I, I think the 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 Rio Grande City Station, uh, just like it is for you, is it will always have a special uh, place in my heart. And look, I mean, being the PIC is 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 just a, a tremendous opportunity to begin with, and to be able to do it at what I kind of coined as Ground Zero. Um, the, the, that station, I think, when you were there, when I was there, when when our predecessors were there, uh, led the nation in narcotic seizures yep. every single year. 
um, probably second, maybe third in the nation in, in, in the apprehension of migrants every single year. So to say that the only about the only thing it did not have, and some would argue it's a good thing, was a checkpoint. But mm. anything else you wanted to do, you could do at Rio Grande City Station. Um, the people were tremendous, um, worked really hard. I think they epitomized doing uh, more with less. Uh, there's no infrastructure. There's no lateral movement. Uh, it is good old-fashioned border Georgian work. It is, and you, uh, it's 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 stomping the brush out there right, along the river. There, there's the marine unit, the boat mm-hmm. patrol that's out there. I used to joke, I said, if you just went out there and walked around long enough, eventually you would trip over dope. I mean, it just, <laughs> it, it was that prevalent, that pervasive in that area, and it it made it fun for us, but it also gave you a different perspective. You realized. We were probably being beat, oh, you know, yeah, and, and had to sure. look at how we were doing things. And, but but a great station, great opportunity. I'll, I'll tell you, whenever when I left and you came in, it was a very bittersweet moment for me. It's, as you know, that's when I went to Laredo yeah. uh, for the first time, which ended up being a great thing. Again, I, I can't talk enough about how great Laredo is. But that was a great assignment, the, being a pack, being a patrol agent in charge. For a lot of people that you talk to, that's kind of a pinnacle. That's a highlight of your career. That's right. Just to say you were a patrol agent in charge, and especially of a station like that was just phenomenal. You talk to a lot of people, and they, I mean, they they ask you, like, hey, what's the best position you ever held? And I think it's it's always the last position, right? But but just being a patrol agent in charge, uh, I don't really it doesn't really matter to me where it's at. Uh, it's probably one of, if not the best positions in the border patrol. But like you said, to do it at a place like Rio Grande City, wouldn't wouldn't trade a minute. I, I agree. I, I, I hear a lot of people say, Carla Provo said the same thing. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's a pretty common theme throughout. But that had to come to an end. Yeah. You know, and, and so let's see, where did you go after that? Headquarters. Back to headquarters. <laughs> so you're for punishment, for punishment right? right? So you go back as the associate chief, mm-hmm. and this is where you actually did some uh, some pretty cool assignments that not many people get a chance to do. You did a, a joint duty program out of the office of the commissioner of CDP, right. and you also served as the director for border security at the National Security Council at the White House. That sounds impressive. Yes, sir. So I want to talk about both of those. First, tell me about this uh, this assignment at the commissioner's office. What did that entail, and what did you do? Um, so the, the the joint duty assignment program, it, so while I was at Rio Grande City, I had the opportunity to go to the U.S. Army War College. Um, and really kind of dove deeply into into studying uh, strategic studies obviously but uh, the leadership development leader development kind of uh, building organizations stuff like that and one thing that that really resonated with me is um, broadening experiences so it's outstanding to you know into the board which at 18 years old potentially retired at 57 years old right and have done nothing but been a border patrol agent, and that could work, right? But as a, as a, as you mature your career as a leader, um, I think having opportunities to do things outside of our home organization, U.S. Border Patrol, um, really lends itself to uh, to being a better leader for uh, the future of the organization at a strategic level. Um, so when I had the as at the, as at, the um, at the War College, one of my, part of my thesis was. Um, had several parts to it, but one of them was uh, recommend, the recommendation of developing a joint duty assignment to, to broaden uh, the the future leaders of the organization. Um, as I was coming out of the War College and, and eventually transitioning into headquarters, uh, the acting commissioner of the time, uh, Kevin McAleenan, mm-hmm. um, was got his hands on my thesis. And uh, no thanks to uh, the former chief, Carla Provost, mm-hmm. that, that you mentioned. Um, and 
he, he wanted to develop a joint duty assignment. So as soon as I got to headquarters, he pulled me in and said, uh, don't know what this JDA thing looks like, this joint duty assignment looks like, but I need you to, to run it and lead it. And so I put together a working group. Um, we, we spent uh, many, many hours uh, kind of fashioning what we thought it could be. And uh, happy to say it's a, it's a thing now. We actually have instituted the joint duty assignment program uh, into the newly formed CBP watch. Mm. So if a, an OFO officer or a board of agent, whomever goes up and, and does an NTE position at the CBP watch, they are now given credit as a joint duty officer. Oh, and they have you to thank for that. Yes, sir. <laughs> All started as a thesis. That's right. That's hundred percent how it happened. Well, that's a pretty amazing story. And, and you know, it's uh, that that very few people have the opportunity to to say they created an idea and watched it come to fruition like that's that. Right. that. That's pretty pretty amazing. It it is uh, it, it, it's humbling is what it is. I mean, I, you, to say that the, the entire organization uh, adopted a, a a program that that you were passionate about. And there's others uh, out there. I think you, you just did a podcast with uh, uh, kind of our veterans, leading mm-hmm. up our veterans uh, team, our veteran support team, yep. uh, kind of very similar, like super passionate, um, has a vision for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, just, uh, I'm sure he feels the same way about something coming to fruition. I can tell you he does. Yeah. It's one of the most, uh, Josh Gill, yeah. one of the most passionate individuals I've, I've had the pleasure to meet. Yeah. So that was a great assignment, a great opportunity, and that, that was you making the most of that opportunity to, to go to the War College, which yeah. I think everybody that has the opportunity ought to go through an experience. That's that's a very once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that not many of us have. Yeah. At a minimum, you, you not only do you, you get a little smarter mm-hmm. in, in, our, in our world of national security, but you also uh, increase your profound appreciation for some of the people that are uh, – doing that mission for a living every single day as well. So, you know, and, and you know, for everybody that's listening, when you go to these schools, or the National Defense University, they have a whole host of them with the, with the Army War College, the Navy Postgraduate School. You have the National War College, the Marine Corps has one, Air Force has it. Mm-hmm. But you're in these seminar groups and these classes mm-hmm. you bounce around. They're small classes, mm-hmm. and you're in a, a, you know, a table. And I can remember I'm sitting there, and in the same seminar group as, as me, <laughs> You had uh, you know, General Myers, former chairman of Joint Chief of Staff, was the facilitator. You know, he had, had retired. And I'm sitting there, and there's an Iraqi brigadier general, yeah. a Pakistani commodore, mm-hmm. a senior colonel with the Vietnamese Army, an F-15 Air Force colonel, a Marine Corps Harrier pilot, mm-hmm. you know, colonel. You had people from the uh, CIA, NSA, DIA, State Department, USAID, and then a, a guy from Tahlequah, Oklahoma, you know, <laughs> in Border Patrol. And I remember you're listening to him talk, and, and you just, you're sitting there listening, and you forget you're supposed to be participating. Right. You're just in awe, because when do you ever get to hear those perspectives and those conversations take right. place? Those kinds of opportunities, you can't buy experience like that. Absolutely not. Absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. So I, I recommend that to anybody that has the opportunity. They, they still There's offer kind of an overlay of the academy as well, if you think about it. You, like, as part of these seminars, right? When you're, we're in these war colleges or, or defense universities, um, it's kind of a Socratic method of teaching, mm-hmm. right? The instructor kind of throws out some red meat on the table and whatever the topic of the day is, and everybody uses their experiences to inform each other's opinion, right? Learn more about that particular issue from 14 or 15 different perspectives around the room. I think it's a lot in, in terms of the Border Patrol Academy. That's why we bring in Border Patrol agents. Yep. 
to teach. 100%. That's why we don't um, completely outsource entirely uh, the development of our trainees, of our of our future, because that experience, you can learn a whole lot of stuff in, a, in an academic textbook. But unless you've you know, flown that jet over Iraq in the middle of the night supporting ground troops, yeah. you know, unless you've uh, developed a budget you know, in the last 20 years for the U.S. military, um, you don't really understand from reading a textbook necessarily what that really means and where the challenges come up. And, hey, that sounds great on paper, but in reality, you're going to run into this problem. So it's, it's, it, there's an overlay that, that's uh, tremendously applicable as well. As so I'm assuming all that came to fruition and coalesced into your assignment as the uh, director for border security at the National Security Council at the White House. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so first day you report to work. Yeah. You're at that gate. Yep. You got the Secret Service people, and you're looking up in the building. You're getting ready to walk into to work. Yeah. Is sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue? How was that? It was uh, an experience of lifetime. You know, uh, I, I did not plan to stay at headquarters uh, nearly as long as I have the second stint. Um, but when uh, when the chief of the border patrol calls and says, "Hey, uh, I've got a job that I need you to do," and uh, you know, there's nobody else that can do it for me right now. So I'm like, okay, what is that? <laughs> you know, they never like they always kind of fluff you up a little bit first, mm-hmm. and then they you know hit you with the what, what with that the job is. Um, and and I I honestly thought uh, that she was kidding. Uh, I was like, you know, would you be interested in that? And the answer is going to be yes because you're going. <laughs> you know, and I was like, absolutely. You know, and it took it, it to the process just to get to those gates was immense. I had to. Uh, Interview several times with the uh, with the national security advisor, the homeland security advisor, the the the, the director for that particular directorate that I worked in in, in the White House. Uh, I had to go through another background check. I had to go through uh, a psych evaluation. Uh, it, it was intense to, to even get in uh, to those gates. Uh, they, they they take it very very seriously. But uh, once you walk in, um, you feel like a teammate. Um, you, you you have. Several in the construction of the, of the National Security Council changes with every president, but um, in, in that environment, it's just, it's one team, one fight. So you may have somebody working on cybersecurity, somebody's working on border security, somebody's working on economics uh, for the country, and uh, just to, just to be able to walk those halls, much less actually be a, a contributor in those halls, is pretty humbling and amazing. Yeah, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah, did you get to ever see the president? I did. I sure yeah. did. Oval Office. Yes, sir. I mean, who does that? Not many folks. That's Not amazing. Many folks. And all because as soon as you graduated high school, you decided to apply for the Border Patrol. Yeah. You, I'm sure you have to thank your uncle for that. Right? I'll tell you what, man. I think you said, like, with your with your war college experience, like, you know, how, how can a, uh, a kid from, from Victoria, Texas, little old Victoria, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, be, you know, providing his best national security advice to decision makers for this country? Just goes to show you that's 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 what this country's made of. It's yeah. it's it's all of us. Uh, that's the single single greatest thing I learned there. Um, you would think it's it's politically charged, and it is. There's some political charge there because there are civilians working to um, advance the priorities of this whatever administration you're you're working for. But at the same time, um, much of the National Security Council is comprised of career employees like you and I. Right, so I'm a border patrol agent working in 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 my my sphere of influence, border security. You know, advising up through the chain of command of the president on what the best uh, policy approaches might be uh, for uh, national security as it relates to the border environment. So, yeah, great opportunity. 
tremendous. Unbelievable. Okay, so then you move on from there and you go back to the law enforcement operations directorate, a, a directorate you were very familiar with because you were there as an assistant chief before. Right. But this time, as the acting deputy chief, mm-hmm. the number two guy in charge of that directorate, and for those that don't know, that is the director that basically oversees all field operations. All of the sectors report up to the chief of the law enforcement directorate. So tell us a little bit about what the day-to-day is like in that place. Um, it, it, the law enforcement operations directorate, or LEAD, kind of how we affectionately coin it, um, is, is is interesting. Uh, it's one of four directorates. You got the the you got SPAD, PMOD, MROD, and LEOD. Um, but as a deputy, you're kind of almost serving two masters, right? So my job is to ensure that the chief of ops and through the chief of the border patrol is fully aware and prepared for all situations that are happening real time nationally. At the same time, I also have to be responsive to 20 plus sector chiefs and deputies in the field as well. So you're literally getting hit from two different directions. Uh, 24-7. 24-7. It literally does not stop in, in, in Liad. There's no weekends. There's no holidays. There's no uh, there's no downtime. Uh, rightly or wrongly, it kind of controls your life uh, for a little bit. Um, you just you, you can't turn it off, uh, not, not because you don't want to, um, but, you know, the second you do, something will fall through the cracks. And uh, anybody who's, you know, sat in that chair, I'm sure would agree that it's it's, it's you know, 24-7, always-on kind of situation. And that's good for those uh, folks that are going up there to know because yeah. you are burning the candle at both ends. And that's right. why the, the assignments are two, three years maybe, right. and then you need to uh, move right. on because you get burnt out. Yeah, but it, it also speaks to the point of, like, you, you get so much information. You get so much development, so much broadening in those two years or three years or however long your stint is that you know that that's why you can go out and be a better PIC of Rio Grande City or whatever it is you're going to well, do next. And your tolerance for chaos. Oh yeah. Gets bolstered quite a bit. Well, when you're dealing with 20 plus sectors where the problems mm-hmm. and then you go down to one station or one sector is where the problems, you know, it, it, it really uh, kind of puts into perspective of absolutely got a little more time to work on projects uh, that, that will, will endure will uh, be meaningful to the troops opposed to simply handling the, the fire of the day. You know, we there's some fellow deputy directorates or deputies in those other directorates that they kind of get to work in in, in longer periods of time. And, and, and operations, it's more of a, I mean, if you... At the moment. Yeah, yeah. it's day-to-day, maybe you get a week to fix something, mm-hmm. right? Whereas in the other directorates, you're planning, you know, you're developing the strategy for the U.S. Border Patrol. That doesn't happen overnight, mm-hmm. right? You get space, time and space to do those things. And it's it's not a pejorative by any means. It's just the different directorates have different uh, tempos, but different battle rhythms and, and ops is just... Different stressors. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of brings to light another topic that I wanted to talk with you about, and I've, I've kind of been saving it because it's, a, it's an important one. That doesn't just impact you. That tempo, that pace doesn't just impact you. It affects your family and those you love. And as it just so happens, two of your closest family members are also a part of this organization. I want to talk first about your uncle, who is more like your brother, let's be honest. And another another one I've known for for years and and somebody I think the world of, Carl Landrum. He's the deputy chief patrol agent of the Laredo sector right now. And he was a big influence on you. Yeah. Getting into the patrol. Absolutely. Probably the single biggest influence on me to actually get into the U.S. Border Patrol for sure. Did he get to pin your badge? Uh, he did not. He uh, decided to get hurt um, uh, <laughs> while, right before my graduation. I think he was uh, on a no-fly list because of his uh, his injury. 
Um, so I had another uncle who was in law enforcement. I mentioned that previously who, uh, who got to, to pin the badge on me uh, back in 2000. So what's it been like? As I said, I know, I know that you're a nephew and uncle, but when I see you guys and interacting, I mean, it's not like a, a traditional uncle-nephew yeah. uh, relationship. Yeah. It's more like cousins or brothers. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. No, no, you're, you're 100% fine. On. We, we, I think we, we probably see each other and refer to each other more as brothers. We get called brothers all the time, and we mm-hmm. uh, have just stopped correcting people. You know, yeah. um, Carl and I are actually closer in age. Carl's my dad's youngest brother, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Carl and I are technically closer in age than he and my dad were. So um, to say that we probably have more of a brother uh, relationship than my dad and him, who is his biological brother, uh, is probably accurate. And that had to be neat because you're not too far off of seniority from each other, just a couple years, right? I think we're almost exactly about three years and nine months. Okay. Yeah, I was a freshman in high school and that was it. So a lot of shared experiences, yeah. a lot of bouncing ideas off of one another. That had yeah. to be a great thing. Oh, it's a tremendous thing. I mean, I, 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 I probably have... Uh, averted a lot of mistakes in my career by asking uh, for advice first. Talking yeah. to him. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, somebody who's been there, done that, uh, especially in our organization, which I, I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to. Not everybody has that opportunity to understand, like, you know, you, 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 you can go do this, but, you know, think about something like this instead. Um, never have I ever felt that any uh, of what he w- would like to see from me was ever projected on me. It was always uh, honest broker advice. Um, and, and allowed me to make my own decisions, which is really important, especially as you know, talking about 18 years old. Uh, that's something that you kind of have to start making your own decisions at that point, right? Well, you have to have a, a level of humility to be able to recognize that in yourself and, right. and seek that outside advice and yeah. perspective, probably yeah. to your benefit. 100%. I, and that, that overlays, uh, and, and, and you know, folks that, that ever talk to me will, will hear this uh, or have heard this, um, that once you as- assume, especially command, Right. You start taking on these upper leadership jobs, the PICs, uh, you know, acting deputy of the ops, chiefs, that kind of stuff. Um, you are never alone mm. ever. So if you're toiling with something, I've, I've called you, Yep. you know, like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. What, what, what do you think about this? You have to. Right. Yeah, so, we all do it. And, and it might, you know, for, for listeners, it might it might not seem that way. You know, I, I spent some time in El Paso and. and uh, the chief down there who you've interviewed here, you know, uh, they absolutely seek, sought the counsel of, of the deputy when I was acting deputy in El Paso. Um, I know that the chiefs all kind of network together, but that's kind of the name of the game. Nothing has to be done in a silo, in a vacuum. In fact, it's probably better that it's not. Well, that's really the only way to survive in the U.S. Border Patrol, whether you're talking about being out in the field working a zone together mm-hmm. or whether you're talking about what you're talking about. It's a, it is a team sport. It has Absolutely. to be. There's no way to get around it. And you liked that concept so much <laughs> that you decided to find <laughs> your soulmate and the love of your life. That's right. In the Border Patrol as well. That's right. <laughs> Allison Landrum. That's right. Tell me about her. Um, so we met in Laredo. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the the opportunity to, to spend your life with somebody who understands what you do um, is, is an opportunity that uh, I don't take lightly. Um, so, you know, I go back to that, that last two years in ops, you know, it, the constant phone calls 24-7, the phone rings all night long. Um, you're, you're constantly having to, to cancel Christmas, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a, as, as, a, as a metaphor uh, it, to, to where work has to take precedent over something that, that maybe somebody who doesn't understand what the requirements of a job are would, would see differently and, and maybe 
um, not understand fully. It doesn't mean she's always happy with those particular decisions, mm-hmm. but um, she gets it. At least understands. Yeah. So that, that's it's a tremendous opportunity. And, and, you know, we have two two little ones at home and uh, can't thank her enough for uh, all that she does to, to, well, and, to and raise those guys. To that point, this is not somebody that's just following you along. Yeah. I mean, this is this is somebody that's formidable in her own right and uh-huh. has her own stellar career as well. 100%. She's been up there at headquarters. She's been uh, leading the STRATCOMs, the Strategic Communications Charge, for the U.S. Border Patrol. Yes, sir. They don't just give that position to, uh, to anybody off the street. They do not. And so I've got to think that uh, whether you're here or there or anywhere, her career is continuing and, and is on an upward trajectory as well. Oh, 100%. I think, I think uh, anybody that knows the both of us would probably prefer her over me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's that. And, and, and now it's, it's, it's really one of those things where, you know, she's a, she's a Border Patrol agent herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's an individual. And uh, all that she's uh, earned in her career has been because of, of uh, what she's capable of and what she's the, the, the acumen she's displayed. And uh, that, that makes me really, really proud. So you find yourself in another unique situation that I think a lot of folks may want to learn from. And that mm-hmm. is you are uh, both agents mm-hmm. in the U.S. Border Patrol. You have a family. You have mm-hmm. two younger kids. Right. And you're making it work. You're making a go of it. Number one, that mm-hmm. tells everybody it can be done. Yeah. But what's the secret? How do you do it? First of all, you have to find the right significant other. <laughs> That's <laughs> the secret. Helps, yeah. um, lots of communication. Uh, and then um, being able to to understand what the priority is and understand that if, if uh, there's times where you can't uh, you know meet that priority, you either uh, communicate why or you make it up. Mm. Yeah. So it's just compromise. A lot of understanding. A lot of understanding. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, Scott Luck, former deputy chief of the, of the Border Patrol, he former gave chief a here. former chief here That's at the right. academy. He gave a fireside chat one time up at, at the Advanced Training Center in Harpers mm-hmm. Ferry, and they had a similar communication but a different dynamic, he and his wife. And he, he actually said, we sat down, we had a, a conversation, and we decided together one of us was going to have a career, mm-hmm. the other was going to have a job. Yeah. Meaning his wife said, I will follow you, and I'll work, but yeah. your career is the one that we're focusing on different with you. You both have careers. So I say that because everybody's situation can be different. There's no one size fits all. But in any situation, you can make it work if the both of you are dedicated to seeing it through. That's right. Yeah. Got to be, I think we've got to be dedicated to the relationship first. Uh, I think that's, that's the, that's the key. Um, And then uh, understanding, like you said, of of what each requirement is, uh, is, is, is key. You know, and she's equally as busy as I am, you know, with uh, arguably maybe a little more busy right now. The, the, the comms world is is uh, is very important. You know, we're, we're just now, uh, Chief Ortiz has been doing a, a tremendous job trying to trying to allow us to communicate um, as much as we possibly can to tell our story uh, as much as we possibly can, which is obviously extremely important to you, it's ex- extremely important to me, and uh, there's no... A better set of people than Border Patrol agents to tell our story, and you know she's been able to lead that charge is is pretty remarkable. And so I'm sure she's happy for you coming down yeah. here to, uh, to 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 take the helm of the academy. Yeah. So you're coming down. What made you say, yeah, I'll take that on. I want to be the chief of the academy. Um, for me, it just goes back to broadening. Um, we we talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, I am passionate extremely passionate about the development of 
of like not only leaders that we've talked about, you know, the succession management piece of, of the U.S. Border Patrol, but at the same time, being able to develop the future um, is super important to me. Um, what, what kind of what starts here uh, will influence the rest of, of that agent's career, positively or negatively. So that that's super important to me. Um, and at the same time, you know, especially having spent time as a deputy of operations, understanding that uh, it's now my job to deliver ready forces to Chief Owens in Del Rio, Texas. So, you know, the, the way that we're able to, to, to train people here, like you said, the, uh, arguably the, the premier law enforcement training academy in the entire country, um, you having the peace of mind that, you know, the, the folks that, that this staff is, is delivering to you in the field is who it needs to be uh, makes, makes my uh, job, makes me essentially uh, achieve the, the, the job that I think I'm here to do. So I think you, you captured it nicely. And that, uh, so that essentially is what the academy is for you. Right. Whenever you that, That's what you're accomplishing for your green family, the, the organization, the people we serve. So when you look at what we teach, what we espouse, the, the mission, the three components of the mission that I, that I had here was we train our future, we preserve our legacy as mm-hmm. Border Patrol, and we, we safeguard our values because, and I used to say this all the time, it all starts here. Yeah. Everything starts here. Mm-hmm. Similar, uh, similar thought process, or what do you see? What's what's going to be the Ryan Landrum touch to the Board of Academy? Um, so, uh, you know, I kind of go back to to you know just development over my own development over time, uh, influenced by things like the White House, influenced things by the uh, the War College. But I, I kind of generally espouse to kind of attaining. Um, the mission advantage, if you will, an advantage over any adversary that we have in kind of three ways. Number one, leader engagement. Kind of a, if you look at it like a triangle, the top of the triangle is leader engagement. Uh, readiness, making sure our troops are, are prepared to fight and win tonight. And then modernization, making sure that uh, our, our, our troops and our organization can uh, gain and sustain that strategic overmatch uh, over our adversaries over time. So that's kind of kind of what influences me. It's, it, it really is what drives uh, me every single day. Um, those three pillars are, are, are where it's at. It's leader engagement, readiness, and modernization. And we're kind of sitting right there at that that readiness and modernization nexus here at the academy. But you know, in terms of the staff, you know, they have to they have to engage. They're all leaders. You know, they are they are the the leaders of those of those new folks coming in. They get to shape that. Um, so I'm I'm super excited to to rejoin those ranks of, of getting to 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 lead that that next uh, generation. It's a good glimpse at kind of what drives the decision making and the thought process of the next chief of the U.S. Border Patrol <laughs> Academy right. and and kind of what's important to you. That's right. Which couldn't be a better topic on what's important now. That's right. (laughs) Those are the three things that are important to me. I'm looking forward to seeing what that, uh, what that gels and turns into and and what you take this place to. I I think it's in good hands. I really, really do. I appreciate it. I do want to talk about one other thing that's, uh, that's very important, not just here at the Academy, but is anybody that wears this uniform. And I, and I try to talk about this to anybody that's on this, this podcast, that's our motto and that's honor first. And so hearing from the new chief of the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, what honor first is to them and and what they want it to mean for all of us out in the field and people coming through these gates. Talk a little bit about that. What is honor first? Honor first to me is really um, kind of protecting the legacy of those that came before us. Um, I, I, we would not uh, be where we're sitting today without the influence and the guidance uh, of those people that served before us. Um, and, and they took the time uh, to 
teach us who we are as, as Board of Trojans, that we are an apolitical organization protecting this country, um, that, that we, have, we are a family. Um, those, and just kind of encapsulating that, uh, the best way to honor that, that particular legacy of who, who brought us up is to live that life every single day. So honor those that have come before us and um, you know, lead this organization in a better place than what we found it. Um, and I think as an offshoot of that is, is um, just understanding why we do what we do. I mean, national security you know, is paramount to any country. Without national security, you don't have a country, right? So uh, to, to understand, to, to, to provide that service to, to, to the, every person in this country uh, and in the way in which we do it by honoring those people that have come before us, that's what honor first means to me. So it's good for everybody here to kind of uh, compare and contrast. And as you were talking, I, I heard a lot of similarity of thought between you and what the former chief Dan Harris, mm -hmm. uh, he honored, honored the fallen by training the living. Right. He focused specifically on those that, that, that paid the ultimate price, uh, made the ultimate sacrifice mm -hmm. wearing this uniform. That was very important. It, it is to all of us, but he really focused on that as well. And it sounds like you're kind of coming from that same place. You want to do right by those that have come before us, whether yeah. they made the ultimate sacrifice or whether they did the you know, 25, 30 years in this uniform and, and, and went on to a well-deserved retirement. That's 100% correct. That's yeah. outstanding. Yeah. So they've gotten a chance the, to know the professional here. And I'm going to go a direction to kind of get them to see the man I know, uh, <laughs> Ryan Landrum. Talk about hashtag green steel. <laughs> <laughs> green steel. Um, so it was a, uh, it was asked to do a recruitment poster mm -hmm. uh, several years ago, a couple of colleagues and I, although they can remain nameless. Um, <laughs> and uh, that, that hashtag was applied to that particular recruitment. And why is that? I, I don't know, actually. I can tell everybody. Go ahead. Yeah. I think it had to do with the uh, the look being very similar to a movie that was made by a actor. Was it Ben Stiller? That yeah. uh, he was a model right. and he had a certain look <laughs> that it would. Uh, I think it had something to do with that. Yeah, I think that that might be it. Um, so that, if, that, if that if that picture ever surfaced, people could draw their own conclusions if yeah, that's why that it, hashtag applied. Or not. It surfaced a couple times. Uh, <laughs> it, it got some some play over at the White House, and I was there. That, that hashtag was. Uh, yeah. Well, at least you were asked to be a model for a recruitment poster. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> honored honored to have uh, been asked that. Uh, Not many people could say that. That's well, that, that that's good. So, you're obviously going to be taking over this podcast. Yeah. You're going to be taking over the social media accounts. They're gonna they're gonna take down my ugly mug, and they're going to put you up there. And then from now on, everybody's going to start seeing uh, Chief Ryan Landrum, Chief of the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, mm -hmm. and and the message that that you put out there, and and given your family members. I have no doubt that the messaging and the social aspect of it is going to be very important to you as well. I can't wait to see what you do with it. Before we move down that direction, though, you have the trainees that are here right now. You have the men and women that are out in the field, all of their families. Any words that you want to uh, say to them uh, before you take the, the helm officially and then become the chief of this academy? Um, just that uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm honored to have had this opportunity or to be provided this opportunity to be the chief. Um, never thought in a million years I'd come back here as the chief, but uh, I, I take this job extremely seriously. Um, this is, this is, in my opinion, no different than running any sector in the U.S. Border Patrol. So um, as a chief, uh, operations is not the only thing that concerns me. Their well-being concerns me. 
Uh, their ability to be uh, thriving members of society concerns me. Uh, their their ability to just focus on training because their family is taken care of concerns me. Um, stuff like that. So um, when I talk about things like leader engagement, uh, it doesn't stop with did you you know learn all the Spanish verbs that you needed to learn today. Um, it's it's are you okay as a, as a, as, a, as a human, right? And and if you are, then you're going to be the best board Trojan you can be because you're able to just focus on all the things that you need to focus to go out and provide that, that service and national security to our country. Chief, Ryan, yes, sir. I feel like this, uh, this academy is in good hands, and I'm going to be watching and, and cheering you on every step of the way. I think this is going to be a, a, a good transition. I think this place is going to be taken to the next level by you and everybody that's here, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm proud to have been a part of it. And for everybody else that's out there listening, I want to tell you how much I appreciate the time that you take to follow us and see what our men and women are doing. And I'm going to make a plea to you as I transition back out to the field and I go to the Del Rio sector, keep doing it. Keep staying involved. Keep staying engaged with all of the men and women of the U.S. Border Patrol, knowing who we really are, knowing what we really do. The objective, transparent truth means more than you know. And the support that you have given all of us, means more than we could ever say. The men and women that wear this uniform and they go out and do this job every day, they deserve it. They absolutely deserve it. And my hope is that everybody can one day see them and their actions through our eyes, the way that we see them as family, as brothers and sisters, seeing them for the heroes and the patriots that that they are. And the fact that you take time out of your schedule to do that, watching this podcast, checking the social media accounts across the country, that means something. So my plea to you is to please keep doing that. No matter who's sitting in this chair, no matter what accounts you follow, it matters. It helps people see the importance of what these men and women do. It helps everyone to see the value that these men and women represent to this country and its people. Everybody stay safe out there. Take care. And for the final time, as the chief of the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, on our first.